Hello, and welcome to episode 120 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week marks the inaugural outing of Cognitech developer, architect, and core.async co-author Timothy Baldridge as host. Timothy will be talking to the creator of the Elixir programming language, Jose Valine. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. There are still some tickets available for Closure West, which is happening on March 30th and 31st in Portland, Oregon. Go to 2017.closurewest.org for more information. And there's a closure bridge happening in Seoul, Korea on March 18th, and another one happening in Stockholm, Sweden on May 6th. In case you don't know, Closure Bridge is dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free, beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. And I can tell you from personal experience that Closure Bridge workshops are a lot of fun as well. If you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast.cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on to Timothy and Jose and episode 120 of the CogniCast. Welcome, everyone. Today is February 17th, 2017, and this is the CogniCast. I'm Timothy Baldridge, and today I'm with Jose Valin, creator of Elixir and co-founder of Platformatech. Jose, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So uh, we asked uh, before we started the show for you to come with something in mind of an experience of art, be it a good experience, a bad experience, uh, nothing you had to create or anything, but just some experience you've had of art. So uh, why don't you start us off with that? Awesome. Uh, so I live in Krakow uh, in Poland, and there is, and I think there is a beautiful experience you have when you're visiting Krakow because, so assuming you arrive like by train to the central train station, in the direction you are walking to the center, you pass under a tunnel, and then after that tunnel, you are, like the, the whole city center is guarded by walls and gardens. So you have like this nice impression, like, you know, that has been built throughout centuries of the garden, right? And then there is one street, which is my favorite street in the whole city, which is called Floriansky Street, that is just beautiful because you are just passed through the gardens and then you pass through the wall and you have like your, and you have the view through like, for a, a big street, it's like its longest street that ends in the city center with uh, a basilica at the end. So it's so now, now I live here, right? But I remember like the first time I was there, I was like, and I had the experience of getting at that point, that exact spot where I can see everything for the first time. Uh, and um, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, I want to live here. This is just this is just beautiful. It's phenomenal. Uh, so every time someone comes to Krakow, I try to give them the same experience, uh, which has it has been there for a really long, long time, and I I'm quite sure I'm not the only one to experience that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've I've 
I've never been to Poland, although I'd love to. And uh, I've been through several parts of Europe, though. And that's the thing that's always struck me as well while there is that, um, you know, here in the U.S., a lot of our buildings, an old building is 100 years, 120 years old. Uh, we don't the whole city I live in of Denver, uh, you know, didn't exist 100 years ago. So <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, it's amazing to see the old architecture that that's fantastic. So. Yeah, I, I remember getting here and and then the the university, like one of the engin- I think no, it wasn't engineer. It was the general university. It was celebrating seven hundred years. Hmm, so wow. like, well, that puts things in perspective. <laughs> it absolutely does. It absolutely does. <laughs> All right, so uh, let, let's dive into. I think we're going to spend most of the uh, the podcast today talking about uh, Elixir. Uh, so, and Elixir is a programming language that uh, that you wrote. And so, why don't you start off, start us off with what exactly is Elixir? Oh, okay, beautiful. So if you go to the website, uh, you're going to see that Elixir is a programming language designing for building scalable and maintainable applications. And if we try to build a little bit beyond that, so one of the main reasons for Elixir to exist is the Erlang Virtual Machine. So it's about bringing, it's about exposing everything that the, the Erlang Virtual Machine has uh, provided for decades um to in a different way and to other developers that would not have experienced it uh, in other ways so in in very a very summarized version like it's that i want to stop here because otherwise i will speak about 20 minutes about the virtual machine and everything so in a very summarized way it's that the dynamic functional programming language for building distributed uh uh, for building scalable, maintainable, even distributed applications. And if you want to know, should I use it? Uh, my answer is, if you have anything that's running on top of a socket, be it a distributed service, a web app, an API, the answer is yes. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, so um, what what is your background then? I mean, obviously, Elixir is how many years old at this point? Oh, uh, so it's five years old, uh, and we are probably two and a half since, two years and a half since one oh. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so so what was your background before Elixir then? Like, uh, what, uh, obviously you didn't go from never programming to, hey, let's write a language. So um, what, what other languages did you work in before writing Elixir? Yeah, so my, so, yeah, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I was mostly a Ruby developer. Before I found Ruby, I I've, I, ha- I did a little bit of C, a little bit of Java, a little bit of even ActionScript, because I wanted to do a website for my band a long, 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 long time ago. <laughs> yes. um, but a little bit there. But my main experience, I would say, before Elixir was Ruby. Okay. And, and so um, what was the... Uh, I mean, so you you uh, you went from uh, programming in Ruby to writing a language on the Erlang platform and the, the Beam VM. Um, what what was the draw to Erlang that that you saw? Yeah. So um, so what happened is that it was the whole concurrency story, and which the closure audience is going to be really really familiar. And uh, I've I've learned. 
a lot also from Clojure because at the time I was thinking about Elixir, Clojure was already around, and I like to say it's one of the top three influences in Elixir. But anyway, it was this whole story about like concurrency, right? Concurrency is becoming more and more important. Our CPUs are not getting any faster, uh, and what well, started to happen is that our machines start to have more and more cores, and then, and then. And then that, that was already obvious because that was like 2010, 2011. Uh, it was clear at that moment. And then I was like, well, if this thing is becoming important, we need to have good tools. And I was already feeling the pain writing Ruby software that had to leverage concurrency. So I was like, we need to have good co- tools for solving this problem in Ruby. And uh, and then I started to research, look into other, co- uh, other communities, other programming languages to see how they were uh, solving... Uh, that problem, right? And then I was slowly being, I was slowly moving away because I found about the ideas behind functional programming and that resonated really, really well. I was like, well, if I was using those concepts to build the software that uh, I want, uh, like half of the concurrency issues I'm having right now, they would simply not be there, right? So that was like, well, this is good. From this perspective of concurrency, this is this is great. And um and then throughout my research, uh, I found out about the early virtual machine, and uh, there was one book that helped me solidify um, it really, really well, which, which is the Seven Languages in, in Seven Weeks book, mm. because it goes and explore like I don't remember the language anymore, but I believe it has Closure, uh, Hasco, Erlang, and after reading the book, it kind of like laid out the options for me. And then I look at the Erlang virtual machine and was like, you know, this is the virtual machine I want to, this is the platform Mm -hmm. that I want to write my software on, right? Because of many reasons. So first, like the the design decisions they have made. Um, So the other virtual machine was created by Ericsson, which is a telecommunication company. And when they... And and when they designed it, they were, they wanted to build it for, for building like telephone switches and building their telecommunication infrastructure. Right, which today, when you look at how we are building systems that run on the web, right, like um, it's very, very similar, right? You're, you're talking to a bunch of other machines. If you're building a web application, you're talking to a bunch of uh, devices, uh, be it a browser, a mobile phone. There's a lot of talks about Internet of Things where we're connecting to devices around the world and exchanging data all the time. So, uh, so that was like, you know, if, if it was good for telecommunication, it's definitely going to be good for, like I said at the beginning, for everything that runs on top of a socket, because it was designed for that, right? So that's really interesting, this whole aspect of being designed for that. Uh, so uh, there are a bunch of interesting properties uh, from from the fact they, they focus on telecommunication that we can leverage in the way we write software and the way we think about software. So that was really cool. But what uh, was also really interesting was that um, while, so, one of the themes of the book, Seven Languages Seven Weeks, was exactly concurrency. But I could see that while all those languages, and even languages that have come up recently, they're all thinking about concurrency, Erlang was not about concurrency at all. Erlang was about distribution. So when they built the virtual machine, nobody was thinking about multi-core concurrency. They were thinking about concurrency, but not multi-core concurrency, mm-hmm. right? Because you didn't have multi-cores back then. So... So, so when I look at it, it's like, well, I can see that everyone is talking about concurrency, but well, what happens when you're running your software in a machine uh, with 
40 cores and you cannot get a machine with 80 cores, right? Now you need to have two machines to, to, to help you solve that problem for you to continue move it forward. So, uh, so to me, they have like solved the long term problem, right? And so, so when you go to study Erlang or an Elixir, we are going to say that we have this abstraction called processes and processes you can it, it's uh it's what we use both for concurrency distribution so you can spawn multiple processes that are all running at the same time and they are exchanging messages every time they need to coordinate and it's in a way that when it, it, it doesn't matter much if they are running the same machines or in a separate machine you can still exchange messages because uh, the VM abstracts that for us. So those were like the main aspects that got me really interested in the early virtual machine and uh, led me to explore it further. Excellent. So I, I guess the natural question to come out of that then is, is, um, and I'm going to phrase this in a nice way. I, I don't mean it any way than than a nice way. Um, why not just write an Erlang then? What was the what was the um, problem? if you want to put it that way, the thing that made you go and write Elixir instead of just saying, well, we'll just go write an Erlang. Yeah, so there there, there are a couple... Today, it's it, um, it's clearer uh, what I wanted. So so Elixir... So I, I said Elixir has five years, but before, like, the Elixir we had today, um, I spent, like, a year building a prototype that was really, really bad, mm-hmm. right? But good that it was a prototype. And and the things I wanted to to have in that prototype would be um, better abstractions for extensibility uh, and uh, productivity. So, for example, uh, I wanted to have metaprogramming to be first class. And I know it's not on everyone's cup, right? But on my cup, it's important. I want to have that to be first class. So that already pushed me uh, towards a certain direction. And then... um, and then I wanted more extensible mechanisms. So in Erlang, we we have so I'm going to do a comparison with Closure, for example. So in Closure, we have protocols, and protocols they are a mechanism for uh, ad hoc polymorphism. We can we can define a contract, let's say, and then you can implement that contract by any for any data structure, any moment you want, right? Um, and Erlang only has this mechanism in a closed shape because with closure protocols, anytime I want, I can define a new protocol and implement it for uh, whatever data structure that we are interested in. But in Erlang, I, that's closed. I can, the only form I can do polymorphism is in, in, it's with like pattern matching in function clauses, mm-hmm. which means that after I define that code in a file and I compile that code, I cannot change it anymore. Right, so that's that's not good for software extensibility because, for example, if what I wanted to do is that I want to say, well, I have this protocol that converts uh, data structures to JSON, and then when I'm implementing that, I need to know all the data structures that I want to support upfront, right? And then if later someone's come up with a new data structure and they want to make it handle it. It's not straightforward. There, there is it's not a straightforward mechanism. You may have to go change the library to maybe support like passing functions around, or 
uh, or even send a pull request to support a data structure that is not part of their distribution. So this whole accessibility mechanism uh, for someone coming from Clojure, it boils really to the lack of having protocols in the language uh, also uh, pushed me to, or, to other directions, right? And then it, it was a debate. It was a big debate at some point because, you know, like, well, I can, I can try to extend Erlang to have like kind of a make, to make metaprogramming more first class and there are tools in the Erlang community that does that right oh I can try to implement something like protocols uh, in Erlang as well but I think there is a huge difference in having that as part of the language and as part of something that we want we want uh, people to rely on as a building block opposite to something that only part of the community will eventually use as a separate project right yeah and, and i think uh so you've kind of answered a question here that, that i had and that is um as an outside viewer of elixir this really is about more than just we're going to give erlang a different syntax right um there's there's some pretty integrated new features it sounds like that that um are hard to do in the erlang syntax yeah yeah so uh uh, the syntax is interesting because it's a discussion that comes a lot. And the way I like to sum it up is like, you know, the reason why Elixir um, and, and ended up borrowing a lot from Ruby is the same reason that uh, Erlang ended up borrowing a lot from Prolog. Mm. It's just that, you know, it previous experience from whoever was creating creating the language and that and ended up affecting the design and both languages they ended up refining that throughout the years so Erlang lost a lot of the prologisms let's say uh, with time and Elixir also lost a lot of the rubisms with time mm -hmm. um, I have considered for some time to implement a actually a lisp for the Erlang virtual machine but by the time I was Exploring that, we already had uh, two or three lists. Yes, and there is one. There is still around today, uh, which is being. I think none of those are maintained more, with the exception of, of LFE, mm -hmm. which is maintained by Robert Verney, which is also uh, one of the creators of uh, Erlang. Uh, so I, because there were two or three, I said like, okay, I, I don't want to do that. And the idea, and what I wanted to do was to have a a known Lisp syntax, but still be able to have quote and unquote mechanisms and uh, have a straightforward translation from the syntax to the abstract syntax tree. Uh, it, like if you go back to the to to McCartney papers about Lisp, right? He he talked about S Lisp and M Lisp. Mm -hmm. So it, I wanted to have like the M Lisp, right, and then have the S Lisp uh, behind the scenes. Excellent. Yeah, and somewhat, if, if I remember correctly from some times I've looked into it, I, I believe Ruby is, is somewhat the same way, right? There, there's some S, uh, or S expression type things behind the scenes in Ruby as well. Um, yeah, so they, they all end up having that. So, uh, I, I like, because it's often necessary for you to do your compiler passes. Right. So, you know, you, you need you need you need to, to tokenize the language, you need to parse it, you need to build an internal representation so the parser works. Uh, maybe some languages they are not going to expose that. And I think 
That's why in Ruby, for some time, it was a separate package because the implementation of Ruby is in C. Right. I'm not sure what I'm saying here. I may be wrong <laughs> regarding to Ruby, okay? Yeah, it's, it's, but, been, it's been uh, several years for me, too, since I've looked at that. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. but Erlang, for example, has an, has an Erlang abstract format uh, where you convert things. So what I wanted for Elixir is to make the conversion uh, as straightforward as possible. And and uh, and have as few rules as possible, so we can implement Elixir and Elixir itself without needing to add keywords and special constructs. So if you're going to try out Elixir, uh, everything like defining a new module, if case, um, defining new functions, all those things they're implemented with macros that just work on the Elixir ST, and uh, instead of being special grammar constructs instead of being keywords in the language. I think that's that's the difference, right? So mm-hmm. uh, in Ruby, we still have a lot of keywords that allow you to, that gives you a special construct and special rules for those keywords in particular, like class, uh, switch, and things like that. Uh, and in Elixir, you know, it's, it's all unified. And the reason I like it is because then the mechanism that I have used to implement the language they are there for developers that want to extend the language. And that's the the big difference, right? Like, I, I'm not cheating. As a language developer, I'm not cheating. Right, right. So so I want to come back to, in a little bit, um, more details about the internals of Elixir. But but before we do that, I, I wanted to ask, how has the uptake been in the Erlang community uh, for Elixir? I mean, it sounds like from an outside outsider's perspective, it sounds like it's been fairly well accepted. Um, well, at the beginning, it was uh, a little bit rough. There were mistakes, like there were mistakes on my part as well, <laughs> on uh, how to how to introduce that and ensure everything is going, let's say, calmly. Right. Uh, but it has been uh, very well accepted in terms of. Um, you know, Erlang events, they are welcoming to Elixir Talks. Elixir events, they are welcoming to Erlang Talks. There are a bunch of uh, meetups that uh, they ended up doing Erlang or Elixir or whatever. Uh, like, whatever people wanted to talk about, it would be the same meetup together. And so, it at with time, like, you know, everyone could see, like, well, this exists for a purpose, this other thing exists for a purpose, and so, and that's how this is going to be, so let's live peacefully. And uh, it also helped when Elixir started to do uh, more um, interesting contributions. Um, so, for example, we have the Hex package manager, which became the package manager for the whole Erlang VM ecosystem and not Elixir anymore. So there is a build tool called Rebar Tree mm-hmm. um, for Erlang, and they use Hex. So that was really nice because it was something you know that came from the Elixir community, and now uh, it's kind of like giving back because it's powering the Erlang ecosystem too. Uh, we were able to to get. Um, improvements to the Erlang uh, source code itself. So sometimes there are things to improve. Like sometimes I see the compiler could be faster, and we share a bunch of the compiler pieces with um, Erlang. So we go and we speed up the Erlang compiler, and then everyone can be happier, right? Uh, one of the things that I was also very 
I talked a lot about Elixir, and it was one of the pain points in Verlang since the beginning was support for Unicode. Mm, uh, yes. You know, for someone who has a name with accent, I need to have <laughs> good <laughs> Unicode support. Uh, so now the for the next Erlang version, which is uh, Erlang 20, um, we are increasing. So after Elixir started, they already improved a lot on the Unicode support, and we, we are increasing it to other parts of, uh, of the virtual machine, like we're supporting Atoms. Uh, which is kind of like Ruby symbols. I think we have atoms enclosure as well. Uh, yeah, they're, they're keywords, but they're called. Yeah, yes. so, yeah, same, same sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So now they're going to support Unicode as well. There is someone which I believe uh, is also from the OTP team. Dan, he's uh, he's adding a, uh, a new module to Erlang that is able to do Unicode manipulations on the strings, like uh, you know, being able to split on graphemes uppercase, lowercase, and this kind of stuff, which is what we had in Elixir since the beginning, and uh, and it kind of pushed everyone to improve because we're like parroting, right? Like, this is important. We need to have that. And then, you know, eventually people are like, yes, that is important. We need to have that. And and ends up like, it's a win-win situation, right? Like, one is pushing the other, like, oh, that's important too. So we need to support that well. Um, so I think it's a it's a it's a very healthy relationship where it's kind of like everyone is pushing towards the the good of the, the the platform and the ecosystem. Excellent. So how about outside the Erlang community? Um, I, I I seem to hear a fair amount of of Ruby people that uh, expressed interest in in um, Elixir um, and any any other trends that you see. Yeah. So um, the the main there is a uh, Josh Adams. He runs a pool every year, and uh, the first years it was very Ruby centric, and and now we are getting more diluted, which is really really good. So uh, we are. I think the main three was uh, Ruby, Python, and JavaScript, hmm. and uh, which is interesting because it, it's so it's interesting because it's a it, it's kind of what I envisioned that would happen to a good extent, right? Because because of the properties of the language being a dynamic language and um, but with a very strong focus on concurrency and potential distribution, which are which those languages I have mentioned, they are lacking, right? So it's kind of nice to see that thing uh, becoming more concrete. So I would say those are the top three, but you end up having people from everywhere, uh, right, coming uh, and going. So we have uh, people coming from C Sharp as well. Um, and, you know, and a little bit of people that are doing Java and they, you know, they decided to migrate away from the Java virtual machine. They wanted to uh, experiment with uh, a, another platform and so on. Yeah. Um, but what is really interesting, Paul, is that, so we were talking about Erlang and then uh, is that. Elixir was never designed for Erlang developers on purpose mm. because the the reason for Elixir to exist is the Erlang virtual machine. Like a good part for Elixir to exist is the Erlang virtual machine, right? And the Erlang developers, they already have the Erlang virtual machine. So the amount of leverage we have to bring them over, right, it's, it's much lower. Um, so it was not something that I was uh, ever worried about. And it was always more centric on those on people using dynamic language today, right, that are not ready to handle the concurrency, uh, fault tolerance, and distribution 
distribution challenges that are so important nowadays. Right, right. So, um, uh, how how similar and this is uh, how similar is Elixir to Erlang in the sense of uh, the like the interop sort of things? Are are integers still integers? If I create a, a struct in Ruby, Erlang will understand it. Um, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So that's a very good question. So Elixir. Uh, so there is no conversion. There is no on-time cost between calling Elixir. Uh, from Erlang and vice versa. So there's no bridging, right? So what I said is true. Like a tuple in Elixir is a tuple in Erlang, an integer in Erlang is an integer in Elixir. Uh, that that has been, and also a lot of the words like, uh, what is a process? What is a reference? Mm-hmm. The terms, they are the same. Uh, the way of thinking, they are the same. So there is a lot of similarity. Uh, some people ask like, Whilst do I need to learn Erlang before I learn Elixir? And in our experience is like seeing people in the community, the answer is no. What has happened is that um, because the words are the same, so eventually, uh, so one of the things that's nice about Elixir and uh, Closure Developers doing it well is that there is an existing ecosystem that we can rely on, right? If uh, So we're so not starting everything from scratch. So eventually you, are, you want to call things that are from Erlang libraries or from the Erlang standard library. So you need to know a little bit of Erlang, but because the terms, the constructs, like the abstractions, they are all the same, most people, they end up catching. They, you know, like something, they, 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 they're doing Elixir for six months and then a switch flip in their brain and they go to their Erlang documentation, they're like, well, I can read this. I know what this is talking about. And there are syntax differences, of course. Uh, but even those, we try to minimize as much as we could. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of Erlang in there, uh, for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So, um, the, my only, we talked about this a little bit, uh, a little bit ago, but my only experience, um, with macros in a language has, has been in a Lisp. So you mentioned, um, metaprogramming and I assume you're meaning macros here. I mean, there could be other metaprogramming concepts in, in Elixir, but, um, what what do you get when you create a macro? Um, is it are they a set of data structures or are they just lists of symbols or or what is how does that macro look and work? And I know we don't have text to, for you to show us, but <laughs> I guess describe yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So um, so when you so when you have a macro, you're going to receive uh, AST, which we call coded expressions in Elixir, and and the main and the main representation for a coded expression in Elixir, it's a tuple with three elements. The first is the function name as an atom, so like add. The second element is uh, its metadata about the about that node. So you're going to find like line information and other kind of metadata that is important to that thing. And um, and then the third argument is a list with, uh, sorry, the third element of the tuple is a list with the arguments for that function call. Hmm. So, uh, so like if I'm calling add with one and two, then I'm going to have a list with two, two elements, one and two. So that's the main construct. It's this tuple with three elements, uh, which is quite straightforward to traverse and everything. And then we have uh, quoted literals, which are elements that when quoted, they return themselves. 
right? So for example, if I quote one, it's going to be one DST. If I quote an atom, it's going to be an atom in DST. Uh, in this case, there is no conversion. So that's the main building block. That That's all there is to it. Um, and then everything is, 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 is it ends up converting to this building block uh, from the syntax, right? So for example, uh, operators. So we have, uh, is it infix operators when you have the number, the operator, and then the, the other number? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. I, I know the terms in Portuguese because that's, <laughs> so I'm not, sometimes I get confused the translation. No, anyway, fine. yeah, so uh, in, so we have infix operators, right? We don't have like the list operator where it, it's there at the beginning as any other function call, right? But when it becomes the ST, it's the same representation as the other, as any other function call. So uh, that's that's the kind of the idea behind the macros. Oh, excellent, excellent. And 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 and, and we still have quote and unquote, which is for me it's one of the the most um, important parts. So being able to to make, so what, one important part is being able to traverse the ST, and that's why the representation needs to be simple. But the other important part is to be able to build AST chunks also from the syntax itself and not having to call functions passing the arguments that build AST for me, right? Or creating visitor patterns or doing all the things by hand, right? That would be very painful. So having a quote and uh, unquote mechanisms, it's also really important uh, for, for the metaprogramming. Yeah, and, and for people who aren't familiar with that, I mean, uh, in Clojure, I like to think of those as almost like templates. They're kind of, a, you create the structure, and then you kind of say, this slot here gets filled in with this variable. Um, and, yeah. And it makes it easier than trying to construct the, the syntax by hand, like you said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like the, I, I don't know who said it, but it's like, it's like string interpolation, but for code. Mm, yes. Right? So you define the code as if it was a string, and then you can interpolate code with code, and the thing knows how to do that. Excellent. So you mentioned earlier, I think you said there were there were three major influences, uh, language influences, that you kind of drew from when write, uh, writing Elixir, and I forgot to ask about this earlier. What, so you mentioned Clojure. What, what, what are the other influences? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's very good, right? So I said, I said that I, I did a prototype before, and that prototype was... Um, um, so when I was doing the prototype, I figured out like what I wanted to solve. Like, oh, I wanted to have metaprogramming, and like, oh, I wanted to have like polymorphism, which is what protocols bring us, for example, mm -hmm. and the accessibility behind that. But the only answer I knew for those things was like, oh, how do I know polymorphism objects, right? And then yeah. I was like, I tried to implement a object-oriented language. It had a pro um, prototype-based, you know, uh, object-oriented language. And then I tried to do metaprogramming very similar to Ruby, but it didn't work out. So, uh, like, we didn't have AST, and when I wanted to do something fancy, I had to, like, define the strings and then evaluate the strings. So the whole thing was messy because I kind of, like, I knew, you know, I had a, a, a final vision where I wanted to go, but I was not sure how to get there. Mm -hmm. and, and for some time, I thought, okay, I know... I, know, I kind of know what I want. I want a metaprogramming. I I want I want uh, I I want like this accessibility, but I don't know how to get that. And then I, I went to study all those languages that I was kind of uh, touched briefly before in, in depth. So um, Haskell, Clojure, uh, even more established languages like Python, 
to 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 go a little bit out of my out of my box, right, and, sure. and see other ways to solve that problem. And then and then I think and then in Alex in 2012 was when I we started to work on the Elixir that we have today. And uh, the main the main the top three influences are are Erlang, Ruby, and Clojure. So for example, Elixir has protocols. Um, and with the reason, and end up being a little bit similar to Go interface, a little bit similar to Go, uh, to Haskell type classes, but because they're all solve the problem of open ad hoc polymorphism. So I was like, no, but I'm going to call them protocols because uh, because there are a lot of similarities between Clojure and Elixir in terms of being dynamic languages and in terms of uh, the the macro system. So I was like, okay, I'm going to call it protocols because the closest thing we have today. To what I want is closure, right. and and that's why we're going to to get that. So um, and then right now I don't remember anymore, but there are uh, many many things that we ended up getting as part of um, f- end up getting from closure. So for example, um, like even in protocols itself, like closure has a strong instance. Um, of what like protocols they do not have the full implementations because it should be only the definition of thing, mm-hmm. and that's something that uh, the, the other languages that provide similar mechanisms they don't agree. But the reasoning for of why Clojure has that uh, resonated really strong with me, and that's what uh, ended up happening in Elixir. Uh, things for working with nested uh, data structure as well. So I believe it's getting. Uh, putting a right. in and similar enclosure, um, you know, I looked at that uh, really strongly, and we end up having something similar in Elixir. Uh, we closure has agents, if I remember correctly, as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So agents was really interesting because so so in Elixir, if you want if you want to have state or if you want to have concurrency, we use processes for that. And, but, you know, a process is like, it, it's like it's pulling a very cheap, lightweight thread. There is nothing in that process that says, hey, you need to keep state. So the way we implement state is that uh, you need to start a new process. And then that process needs to wait for messages that tell it how to update the state or how to return the state. And there is, and there is a, if all I want is to keep state, right, there, there is a bunch of boilerplate in that. Right, and then I would look at closure where I would say, "Hey, you want to keep state? Look, do agent this. You start an agent. You want to update this? Just do those two lines of code or one line of code, and then it, you know it's like feature envy, right? Yeah. And and then um, so and and that's something that um, and that bothered me for quite a while, and and the bother the bothering was coming from closure. So for what it was possible to do in closure, like, you know, because because people were coming to the language, they would say, well, at, at the time my application boots, I need to load something from the file system and keep it in memory. And then we would go and say, hey, you know, open up this file, put those 10 lines of boilerplate, and that, that's how you keep your state. And then people would run away, right? And they're like, well, if I need all that to just have state, that's too much for me. Right. So... Uh, you know, we ended up introducing abstractions called uh, a, one is called agent, which is a process that is a that is only about keeping state. And we have another abstraction called task, which is about uh, concurrent processing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and added that to Elixir. And the task came from from .NET, and we got uh, some inspiration from that. But um, anyway, the idea is that uh, we have this process, which are about you know, it's about uh, concurrency, it's about state, and then the question was. What if we specialize this to have processes that are only about state and something that only about concurrency? And we we ended up having better abstractions because of that. And it was also a little bit of closure influence too. Excellent. Yeah, so um, one of the things I, I've found interesting, and I mean, I, as a thought experiment, I've th sat down at times and thought, you know, what would it be like to write closure on the, uh, the Erlang VM? And the one thing that I've always kind of been hit by, and I, maybe you've experienced this too, is that when it comes down to it, Erlang is, is very immutable. It, it, it shuns mutability, uh, at the VM level. It's not like Erlang is some, some syntax that doesn't allow you to mutate things. It seems like the beam VM itself is pretty, um, immutable. So, I mean, if we go back to closure, closure has some weird things where, when you're not looking in some places or when it doesn't matter, it will do some mutation. It'll cache a, um, a maybe a, um, a hash number here, or it'll, uh, what was the other example I was thinking of? Um, something like transients would, would be another one or data collections where I know only one thread's touching this. So I'm going to do some, some mutability. And then when I'm all done, I pretty it up and say, yeah, here's this immutable collection. So, I mean, have you, have you experienced anything or am I just going to have the wrong view of the Erlang VM uh, on this? Mm -hmm. No, no, you're right. Like the, the Erlang virtual machine was designed to run Erlang. It's not a general purpose Erlang virtual machine. So if you if you want to write a language that runs in the Erlang virtual machine and you don't want to be a horrible prototype as mine, you you need to stick with the rules that are in the virtual machine. And then and then immutability is um, you know like there are mechanisms that you go for immutability. And even there's some, so, okay, start time. So something that we have in Elixir, we have, um, so Clojure has reducers, right? right? Um, and in Elixir, we have, and, and if I remember correctly, the, when you're playing with sequences and when you're playing with reducers, they are, they are like, you kind of need to go from one to the other, right? Like right. They, they have, they have their, your different APIs and, and uh, um, maybe even different protocols. That's correct, right? They, they yeah. use different protocols behind the scenes, yes. So in Elixir, I didn't want to have that. Uh, I wanted to have one protocol, and then if you wanted to be eager or lazy, uh, you could choose between eager and lazy and have all those things running on, on a single protocol. And then I went to look at reducers, and I was like, okay, I, I, think, I think I can implement that. And then there is, if I remember correctly, is reduce take, where it uses a mutable thing. I don't know if it's an agent or if it's just something very small. And like it completely shared my shattered my dreams because I was like, no, I cannot do that. I cannot, I cannot just cheat and, and, and have this thing be mutable. I think it was using that to to keep the the counter of how many things you still have to take or something like that. I, yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. I right? can I can fill in there a little bit. Yeah. So so tr in uh, closure with transducers. Uh, yeah, there are some stateful transducers like partition. I wanna I, I I'm gonna put a collection in. I'm gonna get them chopped up in groups of three. And yeah, there, there's an accumulator inside this thing that looks functional, but it's accumulating three things and then it it writes one and then accumulates three more things and writes one. So yeah, exactly. There's a inside there. There's a little cell that's mutable inside this thing that's mostly you know immutable. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, it, it, so I was like, 
I want to like I wanted to have a unified view, and maybe I can do this unified view on top of re uh, reducers. And it and then and then when I look at that, like like oh no, I cannot do that. And then it took me it took me some time to actually be able to solve that problem. So uh, I went to a, a talk from Jessica Kerr where she was talking about the solutions they have in Scala, and then that led me to something called Iterities, which is something from Haskell. But implementing Teratis would be very expensive. So I did a, a merge of reducers and Teratis, which I called Reduces. And there is a blog post, if you search for this word, which probably nobody ever used besides Elixir. So if you look, uh, if you look at Reduces, we tell exactly this story. And it's about solving this problem where I cannot just go in and make the thing mutable. So we need to be able to reduce keeping the accumulator around and passing that accumulator around because it cannot mutate something. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, I want to I want to take a look at that. I, I, I remember when uh, transducers came out and um, and there was um, on Twitter, you had started puzzling over some of this and and I followed the chain. I think we even talked for a little bit and then I forgot about it. And so I, I got thinking, oh, I should I should figure out whatever became of that. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it took, it that. Took, yeah, it took a long time, but uh, we we eventually figure out and 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 it has been a while. I do remember when reducers came out. Uh, yeah, so so closure has two things by the way. There's reducers which are kind of parallel transformations of collections. Yes. And, and then transducers which are these kind of pipeline type things. Um, and I wow, it's two years, two and a half years, somewhere in there. So yeah, no, it has to be more because in Elixir in 2014. So one note came in 2014. Okay. And we already had, we we already, yeah, we we already and we already had these streams, which is what we use anyway. Yeah, but yeah, it, it's also a little bit of a uh, story that is related with everything. But yeah, like you, we cannot cheat that easily. And in this case, we could actually cheat. There there are ways that would allow us to cheat. So every process has. Actually, people will kill me if I if I say this. Uh, but anyway, uh, every process has a dictionary, which is like, I think like threads in Java, they have a, a storage that's specific right. to threads. Right. So it's the same thing, right? Every process has a dictionary and you can create unique references. So if I wanted to cheat my way out of this, I could generate a unique reference and use that as a key in my own process dictionary to keep that around. Uh, and that and that would very likely work, but it's very frowned upon, right? right. Like nobody would be happy. Um, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Um, so, yeah, uh, we were talking before we, we started recording today that uh, you and I met have met before as back in 2013 at a code mesh in, in London, uh, which was a, a fantastic conference. It was it was great. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to ask, like, what's we've talked a little bit today about what's changed, like uh, that got up to the point of maybe 1.0. What's what's changed more recently in the past couple of years and what are, what are some new features that have been added to the language? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I'm afraid I'm not. Oh, that's way too hard. Okay, okay. so <laughs> um, so okay, I'll, I'll go back a little bit in time. So when we launched one zero, um, I, I I was used to say like there are two kinds of one zeros, right? There is the one zero like we are getting started, and I think like, like uh, languages like Rust did this kind of. Well, no, where, because I feel like now they are like 1.30 something, and then there's still a lot of developing happening in the language. Right. 
And with Elixir, it was more like, this is what no, and from now on, it's small improvements mm -hmm. to the language. And there were like some versions that included a good amount uh, of uh, new changes after after well, no, but the the whole idea was that it's be, you know it it's there and we will continue to improving things and maybe add new abstractions, but they are going to be small and uh, not uh, a revolutionary way that is going to drastically change how Elixir goes. So in a way, like the answer is like what has happened since then is like not much. But uh, we have had, like, you know, the compiler is always getting better. Uh, we are able to optimize more stuff. We can uh, be more assertive of bugs that we can find in your code mm. while we are compiling. Uh, so I think one of the big things that came in Elixir 1.3 was the ability to do cross-reference checks between modules and applications to find, like, oh, you're calling this thing that never exists. Because as a dynamic language, especially a dynamic language that was in the Elixir machine that allows you to load code at any moment, anytime, uh, that is not straightforward to do. There's a particular moment, but that's something that we added. Uh, in in, in 1.4, we added something called a registry. So we have processes in Elixir, right? They are all running at the same time. And sometimes you want to give those the, those things names so you know where yeah. that process is. Because the, the, the easiest way to talk to a process is to have a reference to that process itself. But, you know, like, I need to pass that reference around. So, I, so, so the registry basically is a way where you can say, well, if, if you're looking at somebody with this name, uh, that's where it's running. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's something that we added in Alexa that's really, really important. And uh, it's also nice because... Um, so there's this web framework in Alexa called Phoenix. Yes. And what, one of the things they did uh, is to run some benchmarks some time ago where they were able to get... They wanted to reproduce the WhatsApp uh, scenario where they got uh, more than 2 million connections on a single node. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and they had something like a registry. So that's the thing we added to Elixir 0.4. So it's really nice because we added something that was like highly scalable. We, we ran benchmarks on machines. The community, I prepared the benchmarks and a bunch of people started to run it on really like badass machines that I would love to have for development. Right. <laughs> but they're not here, but like machine with 48 cores and we could see that you, you would register using all the 48 cores concurrently and you would have no performance impact on that. So that was something that uh, I think suits well in the language of having like good abstractions that are scalable uh, that we have added recently. But again, they are building blocks, right? Like we are trying to make your life better uh, bit by bit instead of, instead of having a revolutionary way. Excellent. Uh, so uh, we're, we're getting towards the end here of our time, but uh, if I wanted to learn Elixir, where, where should I start? Do you have any uh, good... Uh, reference that, go to the website, obviously, and, and look that up. Uh, any other recommendations? Oh, yeah. So um, so the main recommendation is the website because we... So something that we were very worried since the beginning was exactly about the getting started experience because if you're going to be realistic, like people they need to learn... They are coming to the language, and it's not a imperative language, it's not a OO language. So they need to learn about functional programming, pattern matching, 
uh, immutability, right? And then concurrency is important for us. So, you know, it's one of the, the big reasons. So you need to learn about concurrency and the way uh, you build applications in Elixir, which has like uh, some particular properties. So because, you know, it can be quite daunting task, we always thought about, you know, what is the always going to be the experience of developers wanting to try this. So we take uh, a lot of care of the website with love. So uh, we keep the guide up to date that's going to guide you through uh, the main constructs in the language. We also have a advanced guide on the website, which is really cool because it's about building a distributed key value store over TCP. So it's really nice, right? Because like which language is teaching you how to build a distributed key value store over TCP in their in their guides on the website, right? Uh, it shows like how accessible uh, those constructs are. So that's all there. But uh, if you prefer something more structured or with different pace, um, there is there is a learning section on the website as well that covers different books, screencasts, um, you know and other things you would use to learn, yeah. Excellent. Um, so I guess, uh, are, is there anything anything else you would like to discuss um, about uh, uh, Elixir or, or programming in general or uh, anything? There are definitely, but I won't be able to remember them at the time. That's fine, right now. that's fine. <laughs> Um, okay, excellent. Um, well, this this has been great. I've I've enjoyed this, and um, uh, so let me ask you our traditional final question, um, and that is, uh, do you have any advice for us as programmers, as uh, people, as um, listeners of this podcast? A podcast. Yeah. yeah so um, this may be. So I'm going to give an advice, which is it's something that I see every day happening. Uh, which is about uh, error messages. So I believe, like, so I'm going to give this advice. I was going to give one advice. I'm going to give two okay. uh, in, in the shape of one to two different audiences, right? So one is if you're writing a library or a language or whatever, you have the responsibility of giving good error messages. You have... And uh, and good stack traces. It's your responsibility. It's your job, right? So yeah, her message is out. Oh, something went wrong. Well, something went wrong. What 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 else can you tell about it? Uh, what are the possible ways that I can? Uh, what is the extra information that I can tell about this? Is this a common error that people are running to? So how can I make the world clear for people from going from this error to a better experience, mm. right? So. Uh, so it's a tension with errors when you're raising them, right? Don't don't do raise something went wrong. Raise got number, right? Tell me like what you expected and other important information. So that's one. And then on the other side of, so if one side pledges to write good errors, the other side has to pledge to read the errors carefully <laughs> and stack traces. Right. And uh, because that's something. So that's what I was saying. That's something we see a lot. Right. Like people say, well, something went wrong. And then and then the, what went wrong? It's there in the error message. It's there in the stack trace. Right. So I think like we need everyone is to come together for this uh, care to error messages to ensure a good experience with everyone. Like one side has the responsibility of having good error messages because then the other side can start to trust those error messages 
for a better development experience for everyone. So that would be my my advice because uh, it's something that I see uh, every day on both sides, and uh, we need more of that. Yes, I think I think that is important. That's something that I've I've noticed too is that I can often, as a user, figure out what was meant by the library when I compare the error message and the stack trace and I go and open up the code, hopefully it's open source, and I go looking at it and see, ah, this expected a string here and I passed in an int or, or whatever the error is. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's all hinges on me having access to the source. It's a lot easier if, if the library just says, hey, you gave me the wrong type of data. <laughs> you know? And this is what I expected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It is both ways. So that's great. All right. Uh, well, I think we're going to wrap it up uh, for there today. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about Elixir. This has been great. I've, I've, um, haven't been able to take a, too much of a look at it uh, since, well, since we talked several years ago. But so this has been great. Sounds like the, the language has got some really interesting stuff, and I'm gonna go read some blog posts after this. So, uh, oh, awesome, <laughs> excellent. And uh, thanks to everyone uh, who spent the time uh, listening to us talk for the past uh, hour or so. Uh, this has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognacast. The Cognacast is a production of Cognatech, Inc. Cognatech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, Clojure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognatech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognatech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest today was Jose Valin, the creator of the Elixir programming language. You can find Jose on Twitter at at Jose Valim, that's at J-O-S-E-V-A-L-I-M. Our host today was Timothy Baldridge, who was at Tim Baldridge on Twitter. That's at T-I-M-B-A-L-D-R-I-D-G-E. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening.